This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they say, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The word of God for the people of God. So now I'm going to read the man, uh, read this the same scripture in Mandarin in the Chinese Standard Bible Simplified. Guolian 免得民众发生骚乱。耶稣在伯大尼在麻风病人西门家里坐席的时候，有一个女人拿着一瓶玉瓶进来，瓶里盛着极其贵重的纯拿达香叶，她打破玉瓶，把香叶浇在耶稣
你们总是有穷人与你们在一起，只要你们愿意，随时可以为他们做好事。但你们不总是有我，他尽他所能的做了，他是为我的安葬，预先高抹了我的身体。我确实的告诉你们，在全世界，福音无论传到什么地方。这女人所做的事，也将被诉说，作为对她的纪念。那时候，加略人犹大，就是十二使徒中的一个，到祭司长们那里去，要把耶稣交给他们。他们听了就欢喜，并且许诺给他银钱。于是犹大就图谋怎样找机会把耶稣交出去。神的话语给神的子民。I hear it so we've committed ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. We read the Scripture in the language that I'm speaking in now, English, and that probably most of you, if you're sitting here receiving this word today, can speak. But we also take moments to read the Scripture in different tongues, in tongues that the Scripture has been translated into. It didn't start in English, by the way. It was tr a translation. It was translated into English at one point too. But as we do that, and as we hear Mandarin spoken this morning, in French last week, in Ukrainian, and Urdu, and all sorts of different languages, we are drawn into the reality that our faith is not localized to Winnipeg, Manitoba. That our faith spans borders. It crosses continents, and that it always has. It's a core value here at Soul Sanctuary that the message of Jesus is for everyone. And as we hear the Bible read in different languages, publicly proclaimed to us for probably the handful of Mandarin speakers in the room, I'm sure you are in your element. But as we hear this proclamation, we are reminded that the gospel transcends our racial boundaries. It transcends our ethnic divisions, our cultural idiosyncrasies, and that the gospel unites us all into the same bloodline that is the bloodline of Jesus Christ. And so. Today we find ourselves again in Mark chapter, or first time in Mark chapter 14 as we continue on. Next week we are again in Mark chapter 14, but then as we go into September, we're going to take a bit of a break from the book of Mark, another break from the book of Mark. We've been in it uh, all summer long, and we're going to spend the first couple weeks of September in a brief series before we eventually get back into Mark, and then we'll finish it off, and we'll finish it off really strong. Uh, but we're going to spend some time exploring why we do what we do on Sundays. Have you ever sat in a church gathering like this and you're like, why is it that we sing exactly? Or you heard some influencer on TikTok tell you that singing is all emotionalism and they're manipulating you from the stage. And you're like, is that what's going on right now? Or, or why do we preach? Why do we read the scripture publicly? Why do we go to the crosses to pray? That's exactly what we'll be tackling as we move into the month of September. So I invite you to stick around and to join us for that series. I think we're going to resurrect the podcast too. So there'll be a little bit of midweek listening for all those who enjoyed the podcast and the Essentials series. But we find ourselves here. Jesus anointed at Bethany is the byline to kick off Mark chapter 14. And in this section of text, Mark arranges it very very specifically. 
He separates this section of text into three very distinct sections that are playing off of one another. In the first section, we have this bit of an introduction, and Mark hits us with some news that isn't news for us. He tells us that the Passover is two days away, and that the chief priests and teachers of the law are scheming. He uses this word scheming. They are conspiring. They are out to get Jesus. And what do they want? They want him arrested and killed. And then Mark adds this line in their dialogue with one another. They say, yeah, we want him arrested and killed, but not now. Not now. Not at the Passover. Because if we do this now, Jesus has a bit of a following and they like him. So if we arrest him and kill him, they might riot. And then Mark like zips us out of that interaction and zips us right into the next one, which is now Jesus is reclining at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. Bethany is slightly outside Jerusalem. This is where Jesus had retreated for a couple, or, or for a night after the triumphal entry, after he came in to all the hurrahs and hosannas. He went back out to Bethany before coming back in to go to the temple and do his thing in the temple that we've spent many weeks talking through. And now he's in Bethany again. He's relaxing, reclining at the table. And a woman comes in and anoints him with oil. What she does is she probably has a jar, probably around this big, with a bottleneck on it. She breaks the bottleneck off of it and pours the jar of perfume on top of Jesus. We'll get to the significance and the exploration of that in a moment, but this, this happens. And the disciples are indignant. They rebuke the woman. Why would you do that? That bottle, that jar of perfume is worth a year's wages. Some Burberry perfume or whatever the trendy one is. Why, why would you do that? That's worth a year's wages. We could have sold that and given it to the poor. And then Jesus rebukes his disciples. You're being stingy boys. You don't even realize that it's me sitting before you, he says. The poor you'll have with you always, but she's actually done something. She's prepared me for my burial. And then Mark whips us out of that encounter and back into another one where it's Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples of Jesus, who leaves the party and goes and finds the chief priests, those that are interested in having Jesus killed and arrested, arrested and killed, and he strikes a deal. He, he talks with them. I'll give you an opportunity and in, to arrest Jesus, and in turn, they give or they promise Judas some money. This threefold division of the text is very specific for Mark in what he's doing here. And if you paid attention to in, in English class, you might be able to pull out some common themes. Here, the treachery of the religious leaders, the treachery of the religious leaders, of the chief priests, their, 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 their uh, attack against Jesus, and at the, at the same time, the stinginess of the disciples is dramatically juxtaposed with what happens right in the middle. The sacrificial devotion of a woman to her Savior. And then we had Judas, who falls into the same category as the stingy disciples and of this indignant religious crew that wants Jesus dead, beautifully juxtaposed with this woman who gives a year's worth of wages in a single moment in devotion to her Savior. 
So let's get into it. Let's examine the first part of the text and then the second part of the text, and then we'll come back in for that middle section. In verses 1 to 2, this scheme to kill Jesus, it's Passover. If you remember, or like put together all of our previous weeks of teaching of what's going on in Jerusalem at this time. Pilgrims have come from all over the region to Jerusalem, to the temple. It is time for Passover. It's a feast. It's a celebration. And if you know your Bible, it's a celebration of something that happens early on in the book of Exodus. In fact, it's the whole Exodus story. The Passover is a a remembrance of the deliverance of the Israelites from under the power, oppression, and rule of the Egyptians. Think back to your Sunday school stories here. It was in this moment that Pharaoh had the Israelites under the yoke of slavery. And God called Moses to lead the people out. And the interactions that go on between Moses and Aaron and and Pharaoh go back and forth. And and eventually, God sends plagues on Egypt. And for, for Pharaoh and his hardness of heart for refusing to let the Israelites out of their captivity. And the plagues come. And the tenth plague culminates in the death of the Egyptian firstborns. And now the angel who brought death as we read in the Exodus narrative, uh, skipped over any home with the blood of a lamb painted on the doorposts. And this was the instruction that was given to the Israelites. Paint the blood of a lamb on your doorposts, and the angel that brings death will pass over your home. And in the morning, everyone awakes, except for the firstborns of the Egyptians. And this breaks Pharaoh. And he releases the Israelites from their captivity. And so begins the journey through the wilderness, escaping the pursuing uh, Egyptian army, and into, eventually, the land that God promised for his people. In this moment of remembrance, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting in the first century at this point. These are events that have taken place hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And in this moment of remembrance, there is an expectation for deliverance. Because the story of Egypt oppressing the Israelites, having them bound in slavery, is a story that's playing out in the text. It's in the background of the text here and now, as Rome now rules over the land that God gave to his people when he delivered them from their previous oppressors. In the air, as The people come together to worship, to remember, to celebrate, to eat, to feast. There's an air of the fact that we are not free. And there's also an air, or in the air swirling around, is the expectation of deliverance. The expectation of a Messiah. An anointed one who will come and liberate us from the bonds of our oppression. Just like God did as he... Used his, he used Moses and Aaron to lead the people out of Egypt. Now, this makes sense for us. When the teachers of the law and the chief priests who are scheming for Jesus' arrests and murder say, but not during the festival, for the people may riot. There's this sense, after Jesus did all that he did in the temple... After going toe-to-toe with pretty much everyone in the temple, there is this sense that Jesus might just go toe-to-toe with Rome. 
He might just overthrow this whole thing. Do you remember what he had said previously? He talked about the temple being worth nothing anymore. I mean, enough to get him arrested and killed because he's upsetting the authorities, but the crowd might just think that he's on to something. And that scares the religious authorities. I mean, what, what's clear to us in this section of the text, in just these two verses, is that those in charge of the temple system feared man infinitely more than they trusted God. They feared man. They feared a riot infinitely more than they trusted God. And I can't help but think how relatable that might be for you and me. Do you fear man? Do you fear the opinion, the punishment, the consequence, the whatever of somebody else, the eye of disdain, the mar on your reputation? Do you fear that in place of your trust in the Lord? We read in the book of Proverbs, chapter 29, verses 20, verse 25, fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. The contrast here isn't between like fear and certainty. You know, it's like fear or confidence. It's fear and trust. And more specifically, it's fear of man fear of others, and trust in the Lord. It's clear to us this morning that the chief priests had no trust in their Lord, despite being in charge of the religious system. That for them, their fear was the crowds, their fear was actually their Lord, and not the good kind of fear, their fear of Jesus being who he actually said he was, was overtaking them. Let's skip ahead to verses 10 and 11, where we read, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this. They promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand them over to him. You know what's interesting here? Mark gives us a suspect. Any true crime podcast fans up in here? You, you listen to the true crime podcast on the road trip? This me? No, just me. Literally. Yeah, okay, I know. It's all the true crime people are weird, right? <laughs> you and me. You don't give a suspect without giving motive. But this is exactly what Mark does. I mean, I listened to a podcast. It was just this last week. And the whole thing was that the prosecution built a case on a motive, but this motive was flawed. They said, this, he's an angry guy. Of course he did this. He's so mad. He's so upset. And the defense over here is like, yo, he's chill. There's, he, he's not angry. He's not upset. He didn't do this. They put forward a motive because they had to find some sort of motive if they were going to accuse him of the crime. But what Mark does is he gives us a suspect. He gives us Judas. And he even tells us what Judas goes and does, but he doesn't tell us why Judas does it. Why does Judas go off? Now, if we read the other Gospels, we might be informed of a couple different motivations for Judas. We might know that Judas is a, is a greedy man. He, he betrayed Jesus out of pure greed. Or because of, of who Judas was and his ex 
expectation of who the Messiah should be. He thought that Jesus maybe wasn't moving this whole Messiah thing along. And if he involved some uh, authorities into the equation, maybe Jesus will then have to put his foot down, start his rebellion, overthrow some things, make some things happen. It wasn't working to Judas's timeline. The other gospel writers kind of give us insight into who Judas is and what his motive might be. But Mark doesn't. And as I was wrestling through this, and then why is it the chief priests and then Judas and, and then the, the, the stingy disciples who are all held together in this text as those who don't recognize their Lord for who he is, why is Mark doing this? And I couldn't help but think that if Mark throws forward a suspect but no motive, it means that he could really throw forward any suspect. That he could name you. That he could name me. That he could name any other disciple. That we all may be, in one way or another, a Judas. Betraying our Lord. It's open-ended for Mark. We see ourselves here in Judas, the ones who turn our back on our Savior. The one the ones who take Jesus's plan for our lives and take it into our own hands and try to maybe speed it up a little bit. Mark doesn't give us a motive and it allows us to be the suspect as we read the scripture this morning. What Mark's doing reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 and onward, we read this. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. When Jeremiah writes this, the people of Israel are in active rebellion against God. We know from history that around the time that Jeremiah is writing, the Babylonians are knocking on the door of Jerusalem. And they're not knocking nicely. They're sieging the city. They're slaughtering the city's inhabitants. And they're carrying anyone who survives off into captivity in Babylon. And it's in the midst of this that Jeremiah is writing. And he's saying, God is seeking a faithful covenant partner. He is seeking you to be who you were meant to be, who you were created to be, one who puts him first above all things. But you, O Israel, are not like the tree planted by the stream. In fact, your hearts are wicked, deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And we see Judas in this moment. And we see the religious rulers in this moment. And we even see the disciples in this moment. Their hearts wicked. Beyond cure. And then we find this narrative. 
verses 3 through 9. The woman who anoints Jesus with expensive perfume. First of all, what's this business of anointing? Why is she dumping perfume on anyone? We don't do that today. In fact, we have no scent policies today. But she breaks, breaks the expensive jar and pours it. I mean, a year's worth of wages. We are talking about an investment piece here. Probably handed down from her family. This was, this was all the wealth, perhaps, that this woman had. Or belonged to somebody who earned it, passed it on to her. Regardless, it's a lot of money. This thing fetches a dollar or many dollars on Facebook Marketplace. And she has it and she gives it, pouring it out on Jesus. This business of anointing. At this time, in this place, when a guest comes into your home, it would be customary to anoint them with oil. A bit of a dab of oil on the brow or on the forehead. A little bit of oil goes a long way when you are in the desert and the sun has hit your head and there's no SPF 50 and your skin is cracked. It's like a, a, it's a gesture of hospitality. Welcome to my home. Allow me to refresh you. And in a day and time when there's no commercially available deodorant in the way that there is today, a little bit of fragrance in the middle of the desert heat is probably not that bad. But she doesn't just anoint him with a little bit of oil. I mean, think to Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, uh, it's this beautiful psalm, this kind of flowy psalm that we all know and memorize if you're a Christian. And David, I mean, we, we really love the beginning of it. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. But then we get to this point halfway through the psalm where David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. We're like, okay, we love the you lead me by green pastures because that makes sense. Like we get the image of the peaceful stream and river and green wall, whatever. But you anoint my head with oil? David's posturing himself as a guest at the Lord's table. Like, Lord, you have invited me into your table. Like you've cooked a meal for me. And then when I showed up, you anointed my head with oil as an act of hospitality. Do we see what the anointing is here? It's an act of hospitality. We really get it if you think of it in that context and the next line where it says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Like Jesus is pouring and pouring, or, or, or the Lord in this context is pouring and pouring. And David's drinking and drinking and the Lord just keeps pouring his glass. It overflows. He has an abundance it's like you've ever been at somebody's house and you're like, I don't want to ask for something to drink, but I really need something to drink, right? David doesn't have that question. The Lord is a hospitable host in Psalm 23. So we come back and we see that this woman's anointing of Jesus is an act of hospitality. What it surely is, though, is an act of unorthodox hospitality. In fact, an act of a hospitality that's culturally unacceptable. Yet, anoint your guest when your guest comes in, but, but not with that. And, and not to that degree. And we get it because the disciples are just mad at her. It doesn't say they rebuked her. It says they rebuked her harshly. They had words for her. What the heck are you doing? Why are you... Do you understand how much that's worth? I feel like that's going to be my son when he knocks over a vase or something. I don't even know if we have a vase in our house, but I'm sure he'll break something. Do you understand how much that's worth? 
What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Do you know how much we could have sold that for? Do you know how many poor people, isn't the most smug thing to say, do you know how many poor people we could have fed with that? And Jesus catches on. Leave her alone, he says. Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. Her hospitality is beautiful. The poor you'll always have with you. You can help them anytime you want, Jesus says. But you will not always have me. Okay, zoom out. Think about Mark in, all, in the context of, of Mark. What has he been doing? Throughout the whole book, he establishes the identity of Jesus. And he's just giving us bits and pieces of who Jesus is over and over and over. And then Jesus, in the last little bit, has directly been saying what's to come. Like, guys, I'm going to die. Everything that you expect, it's going to look this way, not the way that you're expecting it to look. And Jesus then makes it picture or, or, or very clear for his disciples where he says, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Okay. There's multiple different kinds of anointings, different reasons that you would put oil or spices or good smelling things on the human body. And one of them is on dead bodies. We see this picture come to life in the scripture when the women go to Jesus's tomb after he's been buried and they meet the angel there. The text tells us why they're going to the tomb. They've come to prepare the body. Mark literally says to anoint the body. But of course, Jesus isn't there because he is resurrected. Jesus' body was never prepared after his death. In fact, Jesus here is saying, she's anointed me for my burial before my death. What this woman has done is a good thing. She has prepared my body to die, to be buried. He's telling this to his disciples, but we'll see they continue to not understand. In fact, the they're indignant. And it's particularly manifested, and Mark tells us, in the person of Judas. Before we get to Judas, isn't it interesting, in verse 9, that the disciples, well, well throughout, throughout Mark, the disciples are the ones who want to be at the right hand of Jesus. They're like, your kingdom is in breaking. Things are going to change. It's all going to be new. Let us have seats of power and authority, please. But what Jesus says in verse 9 is it's not his disciples who will have lasting memory. But he tells us, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The woman who did a beautiful thing for her Savior by anointing him in preparation for his burial with an extraordinary act of hospitality when she came into the home. Here we are today talking about this woman. It wasn't the people who pined for positions and, uh, of authority and of power in God's kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom that he was bringing in that got those seats. It was the woman who gave her all in this moment, everything she had in service of her Savior. 
And as we look at all of this text, and all of its three fragments, and how they hang together, the stingy disciples, the chief priests and rulers of the law who are out to get Jesus killed, Judas himself, ready to betray. As we look at all of this, how does it all hang together? What's God's word for you? What's God's word for me? I think first, is that the cure for the deceitful, for the stingy, for the betraying heart is the resurrected Christ. The cure for the deceitful, for the stingy, for the deceptive, for the betraying, for that heart, the heart that Jeremiah points out was present in the people of Israel at the time of Babylon knocking at their door. The cure for that heart that Jeremiah actually says, remember, there is no cure. We have a cure and he's reclining at the table. The cure is the resurrected Christ. We read in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 and 8, in him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. The religious have hearts hardened towards the truth. The disciples are blind. The eyes of their hearts, are they're, they're blind. They're, re- they're harshly rebuking the woman for her gift upon Jesus. They don't get it. They don't understand the value of the, their Savior. She's preparing him for his burial, and they can't get their heads around the fact that he might die one day. It is Jesus himself who can soften the hearts of the religious. It is Jesus himself by his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and the lavish grace that he pours out for us, who can turn the stingy heart of the disciple into a generous one, who can reorient the priority of the disciple. Yes, the poor are worth their value, of course, but here am I, your Savior, sitting before you, Jesus says. Take a moment with me. We are transformed from stingy disciples, from dogmatic religious peoples, from betraying Judases by the blood of the risen Christ. Here's the thing. As we give our lives to Jesus and as we move closer to him in relationship, we do it in community. You know, there's a couple hundred of you sitting here right now. And church, as we, learn, as we will learn in the next number of weeks, is not just showing up on Sundays, but it's truly what happens in the relationships, the web of relationships that make all of us up. And as this web of relationships spans out, together we are unified. Like I said at the beginning, transcending our ethnic boundaries, our language barriers, we trans- that, or what transcends that is the bloodline of Christ, the blood of Christ that ran on the cross for you and for me. And it is together as a community, as we pull in the same direction that the Lord is leading us and we allow him to be that leader and we submit ourselves to him and we mutually submit ourselves to one another in the walk of life, 
that we actually become the faithful covenant partner that God desires for us to be. In the context of this community and in the relationships that you have around you here, iron sharpens iron. You become, as the kids say, the best version of yourself, which is the version of yourself that God created you to be. The best version of yourself isn't the most popular version of yourself. It isn't the one with the shining reputation in the business sector. It isn't the one with the biggest checking or savings account. The best version of yourself is one who is faithful to the Lord. The best version of yourself is one who doesn't walk alone, but is unified with other Christians in your pursuit of your Savior. That's the best version of yourself. That is who God has called you to be. That is who God created you to be. In community with one another, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are sanctified. We are made holy. Our stingy hearts are turned generous. Our deceitful hearts are turned honest. Our betraying hearts are turned loyal because of what Christ did for you and for me. And we see then that this woman is an example for us to follow, an example of unrestrained and uncommon devotion. This woman is an example for us to follow of unrestrained and uncommon devotion. Now, you might hear this and you're like, unrestrained, uncommon devotion. What are you expecting of me, Jordan? Are you expecting me to like dance the David dance, like naked and dance before the Lord? It's like, is that it? Like, what is unrestrained and uncommon? How socially abstract or awkward does this need to be? You know, we're reminded of the woman who gave her two copper coins. Isn't it interesting? And I don't think it's not for nothing. I don't think it's not for nothing. How many negatives in that sentence? You count them. It's not for nothing that that woman who gave her two copper coins a couple weeks ago as we were reading in Mark, and this woman, in, in the presence of all these men, get it right while they get it wrong. And I don't think Mark has like this, you know, I haven't seen Barbie, but doesn't have a Barbie feminist apologetic. That's not his principal task here, but he is making a point. He's making a point that some of you in positions of influence or power or of authority, I'm going to say this, that some of us in positions of influence, power and authority can get it wrong. And that there are those who, who don't have that same level of presence or ability or authority who got it right because they're keeping it simple. It's unfettered devotion to their Savior, to their God. It's the giving of two coins in radical obedience when it's all you have. It's the pouring out of a year's worth of salary on the head of Jesus because he deserves it. You know, as we look at this woman who gives her all, this unfettered devotion to Jesus, she's the antithesis of Judas. Mark's making this play here. It's her full-scale devotion affirmed by Jesus even when the disciples rebuke her. And then we end off with Judas, the betrayer. And you'll find yourself in the story. You'll find yourself as the betrayer. 
as the chief priest, maybe as the woman, giving your all. But I think here's the danger of, of saying that the woman is our example. It's going to lead you to go, go empty your savings account and give it away in the name of Jesus. And then you will earn Jesus' approval. But that's not it at all. When we say the woman's an example, it's not that we are to follow her example in our own power, to follow, to be like her. Because when we learn more about the woman, we see that it's not just this like, you know, act of radical hospitality in isolation. John tells us who this woman is. It's Mary, like Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. This Mary has all the reason to pour out her life savings, her everything for, to Jesus. Because she's walked with Jesus. She's seen what Jesus does, like raise her brother from the dead. This Mary that John in John chapter 12 tells us is anointing Jesus, has been impacted by Jesus. Her life has been transformed by Jesus. When I say that the woman in this passage is an example, it's not because she conjured up this, this devotion, it's because she responded to the devotion of her Savior, of the one who she sees has all power, as the one who she sees has all authority, as the one that she knows is the Messiah. And when we think of this woman being Mary, one who has journeyed with Jesus, not just a random face, this anointing that takes place takes on all the more significance. Because you know who else was anointed? Kings. In the Old Testament, we have, we have Saul, we have David, we have Solomon, and onward, the kings of Israel are anointed. The word Messiah means anointed one. This expectation that is bristling in the walls of Jerusalem for deliverance from Rome, it is here and it is all concentrated in this act of anointing. It's this radical display of hospitality that just means so much more. In her act of anointing, this woman is saying, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is the one who has come to deliver us. What it's going to look like? I mean, no one's really getting the whole he's going to die thing, and likely she didn't either at that point. But she's following him. She's given her life and devotion. So when I say this woman is an example, it's not because she conjured something up. You don't conjure something up to give to the Lord on your own ability because then you're earning your salvation. You're earning God's you know, uh, approval for your life. No, you're responding to him for what he's already done for you. Here's the idea, friends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is free for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus in here, there's nothing that you have to do except for turn your heart towards him and say, yes, Lord, Jesus is king. There's no act of religious devotion that you have to whip out to be approved by your Savior. I said a number of weeks ago, well, when we were teaching in our essential series, that, that grace is not opposed uh, to effort. It's opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. The whole gospel is that. You don't earn it, but you surely work for it. You cultivate a relationship with the Lord. 
you lean into the disciplines of study, of prayer, of fasting, of meditation, of community, you're the one who has to make some of those decisions. You have to choose to show up to your life group or to even register for one. The Lord is not going to magically throw it open on your screen. You're the one who has to go outside of your comfort zone and risk relationship with the person sitting next to you as you draw closer to Jesus together. It's not opposed to your effort, but it is opposed to your earning. Because when you do that, the Spirit meets you. And God does a work in your life and in the lives of others around you as He draws you closer to Him. And what the Spirit does is He shines a light back on Christ. And we look at Christ and we're left with the only response that's even reasonable for a follower of Him, which is, isn't Christ great? Look at Him. Isn't Christ great? We're draw, drawn into the awe and the wonder of the God who would take on human form, who would humble Himself, make Himself obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we praise His name, our King forever. So sanctuary, in times of old, the one giving a blessing would extend hands. If you would like a blessing today, I invite you to receive that blessing by extending your hands in response. So sanctuary, listen to what the Lord says. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. For they will be like the tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. So go from here in confidence and in unrestrained devotion to your Savior, knowing that the love of God the Father, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the presence of His Holy Spirit goes with you. Be blessed. Go in peace. And we'll see you next Sunday.